Good morning again. It's a fun Sunday today. I don't know what's happening. We're like, our church, we used to meet in a comedy club many years ago, and it's like we're just, the spirit of the, of the comedy club is still with us today somehow. It's back. It's like the spirit of Christmas coming back, you know. All right, so back actually into our series today. We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. And um, if you haven't read the Bible, then there are some spoilers today. Sorry about that. I feel like sometimes people don't go to church because they're like, I haven't read the Bible and I'm intending to read it and I don't want any spoilers. So too bad, there's spoilers today. And um, this passage we're going to read was written by a guy called the Apostle Paul. He's writing to his friend, his, men- his mentee, his training leader, Timothy, and uh, writing to instruct him how to lead, essentially. And Paul himself was uh, an important early Christian leader. He was a Jew who uh, persecuted Christians and uh, even oversaw the, the, the death of some Christians and, uh, but had an encounter with Jesus and was blinded actually by this encounter with Jesus and was praying and fasting in a room by himself for several days. And then this guy, Ananias, another a follow, a believer of Jesus, comes and meets with Paul and prays for him and Paul receives his sight and he receives the Holy Spirit and then he goes out from there and he's preaching the gospel and he starts to start all these churches and meets other Christians and they're starting these churches and strengthening these churches. This is how the, the gospel spread originally. And then Paul starts writing letters to people, letters to churches and to other people and about how to follow Jesus, what it means to be a Christian. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to get help from this scripture. How do we follow Jesus and how do we do that together? How do we, how do we feast on these words together? Let's pray. Jesus... We thank you that, or we thank you for this wonderful time of year, Christmas time, that you were born. And I pray that you would make your word alive to us today. Help us understand it. Thank you for the joy and laughter you've given us today. I pray that we would never lose that spirit. But also, Lord, help us go deep. Help us to dive deep and be transformed by your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Here we go. Verse 14. Paul writes this, he says, I hope to come to you soon. So he's talking to Timothy. I hope to come to you soon, Timothy. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is God's word. We're told a profound thing in this passage that the church, God's saints, the people of God, that we are his household. That means we're not just his family, but we're the place where he dwells. This is where God dwells. If you want to meet God, you go and find God's people because that's where he says he's going to be, with a household of God. And household means exactly what it sounds like it means. Household means those who share the same identity and live under the same roof together. So church shouldn't be a uptight religious ceremony where we're just individuals who just come in and slot in and we just follow some ritual and then we go out. 
No, no, no. The, the church is this, this family that gathers, we, we're gathering together under this identity that we share as brothers and sisters in Christ. We're supposed to be in community. This is a community of believers. And we're told that as a community of believers, we have a massive responsibility, a huge responsibility. We're told that we are a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Buttress, that's a word that's not used enough. It's a great word. For, for to be a pillar and a buttress of truth, truth is, what is truth? Truth is, well, by its nature, there can only be one version of it. We, we don't subscribe to a postmodern interpretation of things where anything can be what you want it to be or somebody's truth is their truth. No, no. There's only one version of the truth. And we believe that God is the truth, that God reveals the truth to us and that we're to make much of the truth. And if you don't believe the truth, then you're living a life of deception. You're living without true purpose. You don't really know why you're alive and you're, you're likely to be drawn off into deceptions and lies and believe things that aren't, aren't true because you don't know the truth. And we're to make much of the truth. Jesus himself said, it's the truth that sets you free. That's how you get free from darkness and evil is to believe and to know the truth. So we're a, bit, we're a pillar and a buttress. These are two... Um, architectural terms. A pillar, of course, is an obvious thing to us. When you think of a pillar, it, it holds up a roof, you know, especially the part of the roof that, that comes out the front of a building. It's got an overhang. You have to have pillars to hold that up, right? It's bringing a covering and protection. A buttress is uh, another archi architectural element that essentially is kind of at an angle. It, it goes against either a pillar or a wall, or some other kind of supporting element to a structure. So it, it re, the buttress reinforces something like a pillar or a wall. And you can Google that and look up a picture of a buttress if you're interested in what that looks like. But this is the idea that, that this is who we are. This is part of our responsibility, part of our calling as a community of Christians is to be a pillar and a buttress of the truth. And God's word is truth. Every word that God speaks, there is no evil in God. He's only good. So we're the pillar on the budget of truth. That's what the Bible says. It, it doesn't say that publishing houses that print this book and distribute this book doesn't say they're the pillar on budgets of truth. Hey, they play their part. They've got an important role. doesn't say that, though. It doesn't say that seminaries are the pillar and budgets of truth. They, they play their part. They do important work. It doesn't say that Christian ministries are. It doesn't say that. It says the church. That means you and me. That means all of our responsibility is that we are a pillar and a buttress. We're holding up the truth that has been revealed to us from heaven. It comes from heaven. And so if we stop doing this, if we deny the truth or change the truth or downplay the truth, we are not the church. We are anything but the church. So we hold up the truth. Truth is, what is, truth is reality. Reality and truth are exactly the same things because truth isn't something that you invent. It's something that you discover. It's something that you receive. It's something that you search for to find it because human beings don't create truth. We discover it in what has been made. And the greatest truth that we have received, for those of us that follow Jesus, the greatest truth we've received is this gospel of grace, this amazing message that Jesus came to preach to the whole world. We've received this truth. And so in this passage we read, so Paul's talking about that we're a pillar and buttress of truth. And then he goes into this 
poetic description of some core truths, some unchanging, eternal, powerful truths that affect our hearts that we need to believe and to know in order to be transformed, in order to worship God properly. So verse 16, let's read these truths again. This is what Paul writes. He says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Talking about Jesus, he was manifested in the flesh. That's his birth. Vindicated by the Spirit, that's probably his resurrection. Seen by angels. Proclaimed among the nations. Believed on in the world taken up in glory. Commentators believe that this part here, actually when you look at, when you actually read it in the Bible, it's, it's indented, it's set apart in a, in a particular structure because it has a poetic cadence to it that it's either a hymn, so it may have been sung, so any musicians out there, maybe turn this into a hymn, or uh, it was a creed that was pronounced and confessed together. And it reveals to us deep, profound truths about Jesus. It gets into deep stuff about Jesus. This is like a, a written or an, an audible version of a, like a Michelangelo painting. It's rich. It's incredibly rich. And he starts off by, by saying, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. What is the mystery of godliness? When we, when we think of godliness, we think we usually use that term, that word, to mean a person's godliness, right? Like, oh, that person's, they're really godly. Or I want to be more godly. I want to be more godlike, right? That's how we tend to use it. But it doesn't mean that in this section. When it says the mystery of godliness, it's talking about all the things about God. His character, his nature, what he's said, what he's done, what he's promised to do, what he is doing. That's godliness. And, and there's, there's so much mystery around all the things about Godliness, great indeed, it says. It's not, it's not a minor mystery, the things about all the things about God. It's a great mystery, great indeed. In verse 16, great indeed is this mystery. Think about it like this. God's revealed a lot to us. We know a heck of a lot. He doesn't have to tell us stuff, but he's told us a lot of stuff. And, and the stuff he's revealed, some of it's straightforward. And we're like, oh yeah, get that and get that. But, but there's, there's a ton, a ton that God has revealed that we just put our hands up and we say, that's a mystery. Like my, my, my human, the limitations of my human brain cannot fathom the depths of this truth. It's a paradox, something beyond what I can grasp. But then, there, what about all the things that God hasn't even told us? What about the things he hasn't even revealed? I mean, there's an infinite amount of, an eternal amount of things that God would know or has done or is that we maybe can't even ever understand. I mean, it hurts your brain to think about it. But this is the beauty of the Christian faith. This is the beauty of it. And actually, we, we have to hold on to mystery. We have to hold on to beauty. We have to hold on to awe and wonder of not, actually not understanding things properly. That's the magic of it. Magic's maybe a bad word for it. You understand the point. That's the, the glory of it is that the beauty and the mystery in it is what brings joy. Because joy comes from wonder, from contemplation, from thinking about things you can't figure out and being amazed by it. And we have to have, we can never lose that sense of 
childlike wonder and joy in what God has revealed and then all the things we can't even imagine that he hasn't revealed to us. This is what worship is. Because we, you know, we obviously we sing songs, that's a, singing songs and making music is a big part of worship for Christians because it, it's one of the things that binds our hearts together and gives us that deep sense of joy. Singing is such a, God's designed it to be such a joyful thing, making music such a joyful thing. But there's so many ways to find joy in God. That's what true worship is. True worship is I'm enjoying God. I'm making much of God. And what we have to be careful of is that we don't demystify God. We don't deconstruct God and take God apart and kind of lay out all the spare parts and just say, well, now we figured him out. And, you know, academia's kind of guilty of doing this at times. I mean, anyone can be guilty of doing it at times, of trying to reduce God, trying to systematize God and say, well, we've kind of figured him out. We've got him in our neat little box. I know, I know God. It's a, such an arrogant thought, an arrogant statement. How can a human mind, how can a human person understand all the things about God? There's going to be plenty of things that just say, it's just beyond what I can comprehend. And that brings joy, that brings mystery, that brings wonder and awe and excitement and contemplation and joy. It's, it's, it's a glorious thing. And Christmas... I'm a big Christmas person, if you didn't know that. I should have worn a Christmas t-shirt today. What was I thinking? But this is still pretty great. It's red, yes, I just called that. I thought you said it's rad. I was like, rad, I haven't said rad in a while, but I'm going to start doing that one again too, with, along with buttress. Christmas time is a time to turn back to engaging with and cultivating that childlike simplicity and perspective and mindset about the wonder of God. I know that sounds like a cheesy Hallmark movie, but it's true. This is a wonderful time of year to remind us to say, let's, we are God's children. Let's return to the, the wonder and the splendor and the mystery of Jesus being born. Jesus coming. These are paramount truths that are revealed to us here in this little poetic little hymn, little creed that Paul writes. It's, it's given without explanation. It's given, there's, there's no commentary here. There's no footnotes in the original. My Bible, my Bible has footnotes, but there were none given here. There's, this is not a dissertation. It's not explained to us. It's a confession. It's, it's a declaration because it's, that, that's what you do with truth. That's the greatest way to engage with truth is just to declare it. Because truth isn't something that you can always intellectually work out. It's something that sits in your heart that you just resonates with your soul that you know it's true because it comes from God. Because if you don't know God, you don't know that. But if you, if you do know God, then, then you have that, that resonance. You say, yeah, it comes from God. I know it's true. Here's what I want us to do. I want us to do what the early Christians did with this and confess it. And speak it. Let's stand. We're going to do this together. Let's go ahead and stand. And I want you to repeat after me. It's going to come up on the screen. We're going to do one line at a time. So I'll read, and then everyone can repeat after me. Okay? Great indeed. Great indeed. We, confess we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. Vindicated by the Spirit. Vindicated by the Spirit. 
seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is God's word. You can be seated. It says he was manifested in the flesh. This means the eternal God, or the eternal Son of God, we should say, to be accurate, the eternal Son of God, he manifested himself, he revealed himself, he showed himself, he displayed himself in a real physical body. That means that he was something different before that. He had a different form. We know that God is, we're told God is spirit. This means that Jesus was uncreated. This is what the incarnation is. The incarnation, incarnate means in flesh. God in flesh. God come to us. He changed forms somehow. He took on our image. Elsewhere in the Bible it says that he became, or he was made in the likeness of men. And there's other mysteries in the Bible that are of a similar magnitude to this revelation that comes from heaven, this truth, that he was manifested, that God became visible so people could touch him and see him. There's other truths in, in magnitude, but I've got to tell you, this is probably the most mysterious truth in the entire Bible. Probably. It's a bit of a debate. It's up for debate. It's a bit of an opinion. It's probably. It's up there. I mean, the Trinity is one, right? That's, I mean, how can you have three in one? That doesn't make sense to my brain, but I believe it. You know, the, the idea of God predestining things or planning things out ahead of time. And then, but then also people are like, you know, got their own free will. Well, that's like, how does that work? I don't know. It's a mystery. That's, that's, that's always a, a great pastoral answer. Someone asks you a difficult question, you just, such a mystery. I studied for decades to tell you. It cannot be solved. It's a mystery. The other great conundrum of Scripture is, did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? You haven't thought about that one before. People say yes, don't know. It's a theological quagmire right there. God has revealed to us in this passage these incredible truths that Jesus was incarnate, that he was born like one of us, but yet he's God eternal. He walked the earth like you and I walk the earth. And this passage here, this verse, verse 16, it's in this rather pleasing poetic structure. Actually, where it says he was manifested in the flesh there's, and then vindicated by the spirit. This is from the perspective, this is from our perspective, this is from an earthly perspective. And then the third line says he was seen by angels. That's the perspective from the spiritual realm, from heaven. So we've got two from our perspective, two from heaven's, and one from heaven's perspective. And then we have another two from our perspective. Proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world. That's the church being a pillar and buttress of truth. That's a callback to what Paul was just saying. Hey, you go around everywhere and you tell people about Jesus. That's what we're called to do in, in word and deed. So that's another two lines from our perspective, and then the third, the, the, the third line there in that second repeating 
section, the last line, it says, taken up in glory. That's again the perspective of heaven. So we see a pattern here in these verses and it reveals something to us about the nature of Jesus and his ministry and what he's come to do and who he is, that he is the bridge between heaven and earth, between God and man. He's the bridge. We have our perspective. We've seen the work of God. We've seen what God has done, but also heaven is looking down. Earth is looking up. Heaven is looking down and Jesus is the connection point. He's not like a portal that sometimes opens up that you might better get through. It's kind of a little bit you know, unpredictable. It's a permanent, fixed bridge to God only through Jesus, through his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, and then finally his ascension up into glory. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. But there's plenty of things that we know are true that we, we grapple with and say, I, I don't understand it fully, but it's true. How can Jesus... B, theologians say, well, he's fully God and fully man. I mean, all right, I'll take it at face value. doesn't make sense to my mind. It's a mystery, but I'll believe it. He was tempted like us. He was a fully man. He had to be tempted like us. He got tired like us. There are clear times he was really irritated with the disciples, just like we get irritated with people around us. Here's a big mystery. Could Jesus have sinned? He's fully man, became a man. I mean, he certainly subjected himself to the greatest temptations, but he was fully God and God can't sin. So on the one hand, you say, well, he was fully man. He could have sinned. On the other hand, fully God couldn't have sinned. So what's the answer? It's, It's a mystery. It's a mystery. I don't know the answer to that one. But here's what it should do is the uncertainty around that, the mystery around that should make us think about how risky a mission it was for God to become a man, to make himself vulnerable, to become a baby, to be vulnerable like that, to, be, to have humans care for him, to have people look after him, and then to subject himself to the greatest temptation because he said it was tempted just as we were all tempted. And the, what a risk what would have happened if God Almighty would have been in his frail, weaker human state would have sinned? Could the universe have held together? I mean, I hope I'm not saying anything heretical. I'm not saying, I don't know. I'm just saying it's a mystery. It should cause us to be in such awe and wonder and gratitude about what he has done. We say, this is the riskiest thing that anyone could ever dream up or imagine doing. What would cause God to do something like that? What would cause him to risk it all, to put it all on the line, to test that? Because that was an experiment that had never been done before. Of course, it's impossible. In our mind, it's impossible. Humanly, it's impossible. With God, all things are possible. So of course, it happened. And it, because God made it possible to happen, but it hurts my brain. It's so important that we understand the, the, the nature or the, the truth, I should say, because we can't understand the nature of it. But it's important that we understand the truth of, of the Incarnation, because if Jesus wasn't fully man, then he couldn't have died in our place. Because you can't kill God, you can't kill a spirit. Spirits are eternal. So God had to become fully a man in order to be punished and crucified for our sin, because the wages of sin is death. 
Some people don't like that. If you're offended by that, that's just that's the, te- the basic t- teaching of the Christian faith of the Bible throughout the ages is that we're horrible. We can all be so, so horrible. And he is so, so good. And if you don't understand how horrible we can be, then it just means you don't know God yet. Because one of the powerful things that happens is when you get close to God, when you have a relationship with God, you become very aware of your shortcomings. You, you, you get pushed towards repentance. I mean, people in the Bible cry out like, my unclean lips. They realize how filthy they are, how much they need God. The wages of sin is death. The penalty of sin is death. Jesus had to be a full human being in order to actually die on the cross for our sin. Otherwise, we'd still be stuck with our sin. He had to be that. But also, he had to be fully God because no person could have taken all of God's wrath on the cross. No human being could take that. You have to have an eternal person with infinite, unending righteousness in order to take on the burden of the weight of all of the sin of all those who would believe. Imagine if a person could live sinlessly. It's not possible, but imagine if somebody could do it. They would account for their own sin. They could stand before God on their own righteousness and say, accept me into heaven on my own righteousness. But they couldn't pay for anyone else. It's obviously not possible, but just imagine. They could only pay for themselves. Jesus, on the other hand, had to pay for us all. He had to pay, because for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. So Jesus had to be able to hang on the cross long enough in order to absorb all the judgment against human sin. He had to be God to take that. Otherwise, he would have been, if it's not true, he would have been destroyed and he would never have been able to be resurrected. Without Jesus, without the incarnation, without this mystery, the mystery of godliness, the most profound mystery in the whole of the Bible, perhaps more mysterious than, than the Trinity, than these other things we've talked about, it has to be true, otherwise humanity will still be damned. This, there will be no permanent bridge between us and God. And this is the grace of Jesus. This is the unending, unearned, wonderful, free gift of salvation to us. And as we put our faith in this, this person, we put our faith in him, in his work, we put, faith in the, we put our faith in all of that, that's the only way to be saved. Not by being righteous. Righteousness grows out of our faith. He helps us be righteous, but it's our faith in his righteousness that saves us. Let's sing about the mystery of godliness. Let's sing about Jesus manifested in the flesh. Let's sing about him being vindicated by the Spirit. Let's sing about all of these deep truths that we have.